Okay, we will continue now with the discussion of the <coughs> Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. In the last class, we examined section number three of the sutta, that is the practice of mindfulness together with sampajanya, clear comprehension. And now for today's class, we will take first section number four. This is the contemplation of the repulsiveness of the body. In Pali, it's called Patikula Sanya. Or sometimes it's called Dvatingzakara. Manasikara, attention to the 32 parts of the body. Though in the suttas, the Buddha only mentions 31 parts. The 32nd part is the brain, which came to be added in later texts, especially the commentaries and the Visuddhimagga. Okay, so first I'll read the text and then give the explanation. The Buddha says, And further monks, a monk reflects on this very body enveloped by the skin and full of manifold impurities. From the soul up, from the soles up, that's the bottom of the feet, up to the top of the head, then from the top of the head downwards, all the ways to the soles of the feet. Then he contemplates or reflects that in this body there is hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, this might also be translated nerves, bones, then marrow, the marrow of the bones, kidney, heart, liver, midriff, this could be the called the diaphragm, that layer of muscle which separates the upper part of the chest from the abdomen, then the spleen, lungs, intestines, or actually the large intestines, or bowel, this is untongue. Then there is what's called mesentery, or these are, I 
called in Pali antagunang. This is the small intestines. Then there is, next one is udarya, which is translated here gourds. I wouldn't know what this means if I didn't look, in this context, if I didn't look it up in the dictionary. But it's explained in the Visuddhi Magga, it's explained to mean the undigested food that is in the stomach. Well, it's explained as the undigested food. So it would seem to me that since stomach was not mentioned, that it could also be understood as the stomach. Udariya could be understood, well, Udara could be understood as the belly, as a whole area. Then Udariya can be understood as what pertains to the belly, which perhaps could be the stomach. But in the commentaries it's always explained as the undigested food in the, in the stomach. Then feces or excrement. Then when the commentaries add the 32nd part, which is the brain, they put the, <laughs> the brain after feces. <laughs> <laughs> between feces and bile. <laughs> okay, and then there comes bile. Phlegm. Pus. Blood. Sweat. Fat. Tears. Grease. Saliva nasal mucus, synovial fluid, that is the fluid in between, inside of the joints, which lubricate the joints and allow for painless movement of the limbs. And then last is urine. And when the brain is included, then we have 22 of the parts, I believe it's 22. Let me just... Then it's 20 and 12, yeah, 20 and... 20 parts are solid parts, technically the parts belonging to the earth element, and the last 12 parts are liquid parts parts that pertain to the water element. This is important to know because the same list of body parts can also be used when doing the meditation on the material elements. Okay, then to illustrate the way this contemplation unfolds, or the way it ideally, the way it should unfold, the Buddha gives the simile. He says that it is just as if there were a double-mouthed 
provision bag full of various kinds of grain such as hill paddy, regular paddy, green gram, cow peas, sesame, sesamum, and husk rice, and a man with good eyes were to open the bag and to take stock of the contents. Thus, this is, he would be able to see clearly with his own eyes that these are grains of hill paddy, these are grains of regular paddy, this is green gram, this is, these are cow peas, these are sesame seeds, this is husk rice. In the same way the monk reflects on this very body from the soles of the feet upwards and from the top of the head downwards, enveloped by the skin, he reflects on this body as full of manifold impurity. And then he considers each of these 31 or 32 items. And thus he lives contemplating the body in the body. So that is the actual text on the practice of the contemplation of the repulsiveness of the body. The detailed methods of practicing this meditation are explained in the commentary, which <laughs> in my view sometimes makes it so complicated <laughs> that one almost is unable to practice it. <laughs> But anyway, I'll explain some of the methods which are taught in the commentary. First, the commentary says that when undertaking this meditation, one should first master the verbal recitation of the parts. One should be able to recite the parts back and forth you know, very clearly, and without hesitation until one becomes thoroughly familiar with all of the parts in direct order and reverse order. And the way it's recommended that this be done in the commentary is to group these parts together into sets. And first one masters one set backwards and forwards then one moves on to incorporate the second set, third set, and so on, till one has all the 32 parts included. The way this would be done, for example, the first set is called the, the body hair pentad. It is the five terms beginning with body hair. And this would go the meditator would go Kesa, Loma, Danta, Nakka, Tacho. In English we would do it body hair, I'm sorry, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, 
skin. Then from skin one goes backwards. Tacho, danta, naka, loma, kesa. Then one would spend a certain amount of time just going back and forth between those five items till one has thorough mastery over them, thorough acquaintance with them. Then one would go, okay, kesa, loma, danta, naka, tacho, then backwards, tacho, danta, naka, loma, kesa, back again, then forwards, kesa, loma, naka, danta, tacho, and now one enters the second group. So from tacho to mangzang, naharu, ati, ati minjang, bakkang. That's the kidney. Then one goes back from kidney. I'll do it in English, okay? So one goes from after going through from body hairs to the skin, then one goes flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidney. Then one goes back, kidney, marrow, bones, sinews, flesh, skin, teeth, nails, body hairs, head hairs. Then body hairs, Head, hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidney, then keeps on going back and forth till one is, becomes familiar with that second group. Then after one gets familiar, one incorporates the third group. One will go head, hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidney, heart, liver, midriff, spleen, lungs, then back from lungs to the beginning, from beginning to lungs, and then start going back and forth till one masters that third group. Then one includes the fourth group, intestines, mesentery, gorge, feces, then if one has 32 parts, brain. Then brain, feces, gorge, mesentery, intestines, lungs, etc. All the ways backwards to, to hairs of the head. Then after one masters that group, then one includes the next group, which is the first group of the water element. From head hairs, one comes up to brains, feces, then one includes bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat. Then from fat, one goes backwards, sweat, blood, pus, phlegm, bile, and so on, back to the beginning. Then from the beginning all the ways through, uh, through fat. Then finally, one adds the last group, one comes up to fat, then one adds tears, grease, that's the oil of the skin, the saliva, nasal mucus, 
synovial fluid, urine. Then back from urine, synovial fluid, nasal mucus, <laughs> saliva, grease, tears, then fat, sweat, blood, pus, phlegm, and so on, back to the beginning. And one keeps on running back and forth till one masters the verbal recitation. And it's said that this mastery of the verbal recitation, that this should be done even no matter how learned a person might be in the scriptures, when he starts the practice of the meditation on the repulsiveness of the body, he has to master the verbal recitation. There's a case as mentioned in the commentaries of somebody who came to a meditation master to learn this meditation. And this person was a master of the Tripitaka. He might have known even one of the Nikayas or several Nikayas by memory. But when he came to the meditation master, the master said, first you practice the verbal recitation until you get it by memory until you can go perfectly back and forth. And even though this pupil knew the whole Tripitaka by memory, he still had to devote months and months to learning the verbal recitation. Even reciting, definitely reciting out loud. And then after the verbal recitation is mastered, then one is supposed to master the mental recitation to be able to recite the names of all of the parts just in one's mind. Then after mastering the mental recitation, <laughs> this is according to the commentarial method, then one is supposed to learn of each of these parts, each of the 31, 32 parts, to learn the color of the part, its shape, the direction of the body where it's found, the exact location of the body where it's found, and to be able to know which parts are surrounding it. I don't quite know how this was done in ancient times. And the texts like the Visuddhimagga give very extensive explanations for each of the 32 parts describing what it looks like, where it's found, and so on. So I don't really know how a meditator can get a grasp of, on what the part is like if he has never really seen it himself, just from a, a verbal description. I mean, one way which some meditators today use is that monks are able to do this, to go to a hospital and to ask the doctor in charge of the autopsy procedures for permission <laughs> to come in and to watch an autopsy being done. And if a, a doctor is a Buddhist and very knowledgeable also, has a little knowledge of Buddhism, 
he'll be sometimes especially helpful because he will be familiar from sermons and maybe his own meditation practice. He's familiar with the 32 parts. So like when he is doing an autopsy, when he opens up the body, he'll point out this is the heart, this is the spleen, this is the liver. (laughs) But if one doesn't have an opportunity to witness an autopsy, then a sort of second best option, which is maybe not completely satisfactory unless one has a very good visual imagination, is to buy or to acquire a special set of diagrams which are usually sold to medical students, or sometimes if you can get an elementary physiology textbook. (laughs) Then you have these diagrams, sometimes they're in very living color, one might say. I remember in the Nisarana Vana Hermitage at Mitarikala, in the library, they had obtained from Japan a, like a physiology book, which would show all of the parts of the body based on, including photographs which were taken from actual <laughs> corpses, uh, disembodied corpses, so that you weren't relying upon dependent upon an artist diagram of the parts of the body, but you can see actual photographs of the parts and very, very accurate reproduction, photographic reproduction. Okay, now all of this, the explanations that are given in the commentary of the appearance of the parts and the place in the body, the surrounding regions of each of the parts, this is done for the purpose of being able to acquire what is called a grasp of the sign of repulsiveness in the particular part. Like this is the difference between a meditator and the medical student. Like the medical student looks at the pictures because he has to know where this part is and how it functions in order to master the art of medicine. But for a meditator, he's not concerned to learn all of the anatomical and physiological information about the part, but his main concern is to get an impression of the foulness or repulsiveness of the part. And so once he's mastered the lists of parts, both verbally and mentally, then 
he should attend to each part trying to get the impression of its foulness to the best of his ability so that as he runs up and down the list of the 32 parts in his mind he's not only getting the, the name of the part not only a visual impression of it but some idea of its say disagreeableness its repulsiveness and its foulness in Pali different words are used the suba or patikula a suba suggests the idea of foulness lack of beauty and patikula the aspect of repulsiveness I think in singular it's called pirikula bhavana pirikula is really the same word as the Pali patikula <coughs> and then the commentary says that in order to grasp the characteristic of foulness <laughs> one should attend to each of the parts in terms of five in five ways one is the color of the part one should see the color of the bodily organ as something repulsive then one should attend to its shape as repulsive one gets the shape of say the heart the liver the lungs stomach large intestines small intestines and it's all just like a disorderly array of differently shaped parts and organs <coughs> then one attends to the foulness of the <laughs> of the odor of the parts somehow the commentary says this should be done for each individual part <laughs> I can't imagine how a person could survive that <laughs> I think it's just enough if one has the experience of witnessing an autopsy or in the time of the Buddha bodies were often thrown into cremation grounds and so the bodies would be stacked up there sometimes for days until the person in charge of the cremations would come to burn them or until the animals would devour them and in that way one can have a very vivid exposure to the <laughs> to the odor of the bodily to the bot odor of a decaying body as a whole then one should attend to the foulness of the habitat that is the particular part of the body where it's located and also to the foulness of the location that is to its location in this body as a whole which is made up of many other repulsive parts <coughs> okay that's according to the commentarial way of explanation in terms of these five features attending to the color the shape the odor the habitat and the location 
in my own humble opinion, I think it's really enough if one can just get an impression of the repulsiveness of the part in a more general way. I think one can perhaps get bewildered by the details in trying to attend to color, shape, odor, habitat, and location. Each is a separate item. I think one could take them all together and just get a general impression of repulsiveness. Then the commentary says that as one goes, after one becomes familiar with the repulsiveness of all the parts, and one starts going through the list of the 32, eventually one will find that certain parts sort of stand out to strike some people, and other parts are somewhat vague and unclear, indefinite. In that case, the commentary says, one should gradually just leave out the parts which are vaguer till one starts limiting oneself to a few parts which are very conspicuously, very distinctly repulsive. Then one should go on attending to those until one comes to a single part which really stands out most vividly as repulsive. And then one should attend solely to that until the mind becomes more and more concentrated and reaches absorption or jhana. Then after one masters jhana on that, if one wishes, then one can gradually go back and pick up the other parts which have been left aside and then concentrate on those until one gets a clear sign of their repulsiveness and can gain absorption or samadhi on the basis of that part. And that is the way the meditation on the repulsiveness of the body is practiced according to the full explanation of the commentarial method. And I think perhaps that method would be quite appropriate if the meditator's aim is to practice samatha bhavana with the aim of gaining jhana then I think that method should be followed as closely to the commentarial instructions as possible. But I would say that within the context of the Satipatthana practice, the meditation on the repulsiveness of the body could be taken, in a, taken up in a somewhat looser manner without having to attempt first such a finely detailed mastery over the different aspects of the concept of repulsiveness and without having to limit one's attention in the ways advised by the commentary. And particularly, it should be possible 
well, it is possible to practice this meditation just as a kind of daily practice for shorter periods by simply going through the list of the 32 parts, trying to the best of one's ability to visualize each part and to go up and down through the 32 parts until one gets just a general sense of the repulsiveness or impurity of the body. And now I should give some explanation of the reason why this type of meditation is included within the Buddha system of practice. There are two major defilements in the human mind which are tied up with the physical body. One of these is sensual desire or sensual craving. It's kama raga or kama tanha. And that is usually based on attending to the bodies of others. And the other defilement is mana or conceit, which is usually bound up with one's own body. People rate themselves, compare themselves with others and consider whether they are more beautiful than others, or if they're less beautiful, then they become If they're more beautiful, more handsome, then they become proud and happy. If they find that they are not as beautiful as others, not as handsome as others, then maybe they become a little sad and anxious and worried and maybe have to go to the beauty parlor (laughs) and to use makeup and eye makeup. get the hair styled in certain ways (laughs) to make themselves appear more beautiful. (laughs) Okay, so these two defilements, sensual desire based on considering the bodies of others, especially others of the opposite sex, and then conceit based on one's attention to one's own body and comparing oneself with others. Okay, these are two defilements which are obstacles on the path to deliverance. They are not obstacles which have to be eliminated in the earliest stages of the path. And so the Buddha has usually taught them, has taught this practice on the repulsiveness of the body. He's usually taught it especially to monks and to nuns who are striving to reach the final goal. But for anybody who is really earnest in practicing the path, while they don't have to be concerned immediately 
about eliminating sensual desire and conceit, but they should recognize that eventually, at some point, those are hindrances or fetters that have to be cut. And so it would be beneficial to begin this practice of considering the nature of the body even at an early stage. And by contemplating the parts of the body, the aim is to get a realistic view of the nature of the body. Usually our perception of the body in its true nature is covered up first by the fact that (laughs) we don't even perceive Well, first, we don't see the insides of the body. All we see is the outside. And even the outside, we don't attend to with careful, precise attention. But we just take the general impression of the body, the face, the figure. But if we attend carefully even to the outside of the body, then we find that even the saying that beauty can be only skin deep, even that's not true. (laughs) Because what do we have on the outside of the body? If we take what we see on the outside, there's hairs on the head. In the case of a man, hairs on the face. Then there's, you see, skin. And if we look carefully at skin, if you put it under a microscope, you look at it, and it's just a cluster of cells with layers of fat and with pores, with hairs coming out from the pores, nothing really very beautiful in the skin. Then that charming smile (laughs) is just displaying teeth. And if you were to see the teeth, say, on a platter on the table, (laughs) then you wouldn't think that the teeth are very charming. (laughs) Then the nails, which might be painted red (laughs) or (laughs) pink. If somebody has just clipped the fingernails and has all the clippings stacked together (laughs) in in a little matchbox, maybe, then you wouldn't think that the clippings of the nails are very beautiful. (laughs) And so even if one looks with yoni somanasikara at the outside of the body, one has those five parts, head head hairs, body hairs, nails, Okay, so that's what's on the outside of the body, what we always see just when we look with our eyes. Then if we use our mental eye to sort of, after looking in a physiology textbook, after (laughs) going to the mortuary or getting some acquaintance with the parts of the body, then one takes that visual image one has acquired and applies it mentally to one's own body. This opens up the skin, cuts open the skin, and starts 
examining the body from the inside. When one breaks through the skin, then one comes up to the flesh, which is actually muscles. You look at the muscles, not very attractive. Then you look at the nerves or the sinews, these strands of tough fiber, like rubber bands. Then one comes to the bones. If sometimes you see in classrooms, sometimes in schools, they have skeletons for teaching anatomy. You look at it, it's rather frightening. And then you consider the marrow of the bones. Then you look at each of these parts, kidney, heart, liver, the diaphragm, spleen, lungs. And you have to consider not only that this is some organ of the body, but that's present in this body. That's why the Buddha, when he explains this meditation, he says, imam eva kayam. That means this very body, my own body, is a, a combination, a functioning combination of all of these different parts of the body. Then we come through, okay, consider all of these organs of the body, then we come to the liquid parts of the body, some of the parts that we can see or that we experience. Okay, feces comes out of this body, and <laughs> before it comes out, it's actually inside this body. Then sometimes when we have a cold, then we We go like this, and then phlegm, a ball of phlegm gathers, and then we spit it out. But before we spit it out, that phlegm was in this body, someplace up in the different orifices of the skull, in the sinuses. Then when we get a wound and pus forms, the pus, before it oozes out, it's in this body. The blood is in this body. And similarly with all of the other parts. Saliva, sometimes we spit out saliva. Before we spit it out, it's in here. After we spit it out, if somebody says, why don't you swallow that up again? Then we think, oh no, I never do that, that's disgusting. <laughs> and yet all the time the saliva is flowing within this body. Then when we blow out the mucus into the handkerchief, the nasal mucus, and we fold it up and we stuff it away someplace so we don't have to see it. Or we use the tissue so we can throw it away. Okay, so we have to consider that all of these 32 parts are present in this very body, our own body. And the Buddha emphasizes strongly that one should first master this meditation in regard to one's own body before one tries to consider the bodies of others. 
And when one does it with one's own body, then one finds that there is really no ground for conceit or pride about this body. I mean, how can one be proud of just a bundle of parts which are not very attractive? And then one should consider that the same parts are also found in the bodies of others. As one does that contemplation, then it will have a restraining influence on sensual attraction, <coughs> sensual desire. But of course this meditation, I should say, it's made or designed, I think, especially by the Buddha for monks and nuns. So if lay people, especially younger people, are living a married life, I'd say that they should perhaps not try to take up this meditation quite at that point in their life. <laughs> it could have a negative effect upon their marital relationship. There are other meditations which they can practice until they feel that they've reached a point in life where they're ready to train the mind in the work of overcoming sensual desire. Then they can take this up. Okay, so when the Buddha says that the monk lives contemplating the body in the body internally, then we should understand that he's practicing this contemplation of the repulsiveness of the body in relation to his own body. When the Buddha says that he practices that meditation externally, then we should understand that he's applying this contemplation to other bodies, the bodies of others. Then sometimes he will Okay, at this point I will ask if there are any questions on what has been covered right now on this reflection on the repulsive understand that the different statements are made in different contexts and have different purposes. The Buddha says it's a great achievement to be born as a human being because it's in the human world that one has the ideal combination of circumstances for being able to follow the Dhamma. When the Buddha explains the different realms of existence, He'll speak about first that there are the three planes or realms of misery, the hells, the animal realm, the realm of the pretas or departed spirits. In those realms there's too much suffering, too much misery, and so those beings cannot even take up the practice of the Dhamma. Then the Buddha will point out that in the deva realms, Often, though it's possible in the deva realms to follow the Dhamma, but often many of the devas get 
infatuated with their long lifespans, the pleasures of the celestial realms, and so they become negligent and are not able to respond so well to the, to the Dhamma. But it's in the human realm that we have the sort of ideal balance between a certain length of the lifespan and also a length of the lifespan which is long enough to take up a meaningful practice of the Dhamma, but which is short enough that we could see its impermanence. It's in the human realm that we have a combination of enough pleasure or happiness so that we don't, are not overwhelmed by, by misery. And at the same time, we have enough suffering so that we don't become negligent and infatuated by the pleasures of the human world. Okay, so that w that's why it's the Buddha says that it's good to be born a human being, it's a precious opportunity. Especially in the human realm, the Buddhas arise and the Dhamma is well presented. And so, for all of these reasons, the human realm is considered to be and to provide an optimal, I'm sorry, an optimal opportunity for following the Buddha's teaching. Okay, so that's within the context of, you could say, giving us a sense of purpose to realize the rare qualities with which human life is endowed. And so we recognize that we have a very special opportunity to follow the Dhamma, even to win the final goal of the teaching right here. But Okay, that's one context, but there's another context in which the Buddha is teaching a realistic view of the nature of the body in order that we can become disenchanted with the physical body so that on the one hand we don't have sensual desire arising which keeps us fettered to the sensual world, and so that we don't have conceit arising, which also acts as an obstruction. And so to gain that complete, also in order to reach the final goal of the Dhamma, the state of vimukti or liberation, one has to become utterly disenchanted with the prospect of any future rebirth so to reach the final goal, one doesn't even want to achieve a rebirth as a human being or in the Deva world. So for these reasons, the Buddha will teach the contemplation of the repulsiveness of the body. When one contemplates the repulsiveness of the body, then sensual desire diminishes and eventually will become eliminated. Conceit and pride based on the body will become, will diminish and eventually be eliminated. And also by contemplating this nature of the body, then one doesn't want to take on bodies in the future. And so then one's 
motivation for reaching Nibbana is strengthened. In some cases there's switching, in some cases there's not switching. In, this varies very, very much depending upon the individual meditator and if he's meditating under a teacher, upon the advice of his teacher. For example, anapanasati can be used as a vehicle of meditation which will take one all the ways from the first day one sits down and tries to become aware of one's in and out breath, not even being able to feel the breath. From that day, it can take one all the ways up to arhatship. Even the Buddha himself, when he sat down under the Bodhi tree, he used Anapanasati as his vehicle of meditation till he was able to reach Buddhahood through that, that meditation. So Anapanasati could be used to go all the ways right to the final goal. And in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha says that the practice of Anapanasati, if carried through in all of the 16 steps explained in that sutta, will fill all of the four foundations of mindfulness. And by doing so, it will lead to complete enlightenment and final liberation. But also, for some meditators, their temperament might not be so well suited for Anapanasati, and so eventually they might be either on their own volition or through the advice of their teacher, they might be directed to move to a different subject, like repulsiveness of the body. Many teachers use Anapanasati at the beginning because it's very, in a way, it's the ideal meditation subject for getting some idea of how one's own mind works. Because the attention to the breath, it's like a completely colorless meditation subject. Just like if we want to see the true color of some object, if we have a red screen on the window, then when the light comes through, the sunlight gets tinted by the red shade, the red curtain, and so the object that we look at appears pinkish. So we don't see the piece of paper in its <coughs> true color. If we have a blue screen over the window, then when the light comes through, we see the piece of paper looks a little bit bluish. If it's a green shade, then the paper looks a little bit greenish. But if we want to see the piece of paper in its true color, then we have to have just clear sunlight coming through without any colored shade. And so the practice of Anapanasati 
it's like clear sunlight thrown on the mind because one is continually you're not biasing the mind in any direction not trying to push it in any direction but one is just trying to attend when breathing in in and breathing out breathing out so as one is breathing in and out then the mind will naturally wander away from the in and out breath and some people might not have any idea of how their minds work till they start this but then um, some meditator might be breathing in out in, out, then he might start remembering, ah, that woman I passed on the street, that I pass on the street every day, very pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps maybe I should stop her and try to strike up a conversation. Oh, what am I, my mind is wandering. In, out, in, out. What am I going to have for lunch? The group said you want to bring the mind back again. Yeah, okay. One brings the mind back. Oh, he's bringing it back. In, out, in, out. He starts thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? Where should I go? And maybe that restaurant has much better food than the other place. Okay, so he's in, out, in, out. Then he's thinking, okay. My birthday is coming up soon. <laughs> what are my friends going to give me for my birthday? Okay, so this person, you see, his mind is wandering again and again. It's some sensual attraction that's getting him. So maybe after he's you know, gotten some experience with Anapanasati, he might go to his meditation teacher. The meditation teacher might ask, when you're practicing this, what do you notice about your thoughts? And he might say, well, I frequently am thinking of sensual thoughts. In that case, the meditation teacher might think, for this person, it might be a good idea to do full-time meditation on the the repulsiveness of the body. And so that person might be assigned this as a full-time meditation subject. Another person is sitting there in, out, in, out. They might think, that was a pretty nasty comment my neighbor made to me this morning. In, out, in, out. I don't have to take that kind of stuff from him. You know, I could speak back to him just as well. Whoops, mind is wandering. In, out. (laughs) In, out. You know, these people that I work with are just working too damn slow. In, out. In, out. In, out. Why did the boss have to give the promotion to that guy? I was the one that really deserved it. Whoops, my mind was wandering. And, you know, I don't have to work in this place. I can, I'm sure if I were to apply, there'd be a dozen places he could take me in, out, in, out, in, out. 
and why don't the neighbors keep their lawn cleaner? <laughs> They're always letting their, their leaves fall into my backyard. <laughs> and so this person, you see, his mind always wandering, but there are some thoughts of anger and aggression, competitiveness. And so a person like this might come to the meditation teacher and he might ask, what kind of thoughts are going through your mind? And if he tells them that I often have angry thoughts, thoughts of ill will, resentment, then the meditation teacher might tell him to practice metta bhavana, maitri bhavana. Okay, so somebody, okay, so somebody who has constantly troubled by um, thoughts of anger and resentment, he might get metta bhavana assigned as a full-time subject. <laughs> somebody else might be doing anapanasati and he notices sometimes, once in a while, a few thoughts of sensual desire come up, Sometimes some thoughts of anger come up, sometimes just stray wandering thoughts come up, um, sometimes just worrying thoughts come up. And so a person like that might be advised, if he's doing full-time meditation, maybe the teacher will say, continue to do anapanasati most of the time, but maybe each day try to get in one period of doing uh, the repulsiveness of the body and one period do metta-bhavana. You know, so different combinations of the meditation subjects might be recommended for people with different temperaments. Okay, any other questions? Okay, then maybe we will stop stop here for today. And we continue next Thursday with sections five and six.